We go to this new restaurant called Welcome to Moe's. I know there's Moe's, but they call it Welcome to Moe's. They say, Pap, Mari said we could go to Welcome to Moe's. Mari's Gwen, I'm Pap. I said, okay, we're in. So we get to Welcome to Moe's, and as soon as we get there, they all have to use the bathroom. And you hate taking wombats to the bathroom. It's a disaster. So I'm getting the food. She's doing the bathroom drill. We sit down at the table. I get the food, and we're eating, and we're about five minutes into the meal. And Anna, the middle female child, says, I need to go to the potty again. So my wife dutifully gets up. I don't think she, I don't think she ever ate that night. But she went to the restroom with Anna, and while she was in the restroom, Nathan, the oldest one, said to his two-year-old brother, Jake, Jake, what is your favorite thing in the world? And he said, Mari. And, and Nathan said, no, no, not Mari. Something like, I, I thought you would say Mickey Mouse. He said, no, Mari. So I looked across the table at Jake. I said, Jake, what about me? And he said, no, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> the question is, how do I get on that list? You know, and the question is asked of the Bible. How do books get in the Bible? How do they get on that list? Was there some big committee that decided, oh, these are the ones that get in and the we, these are the ones that get out? That's the accusation. I have this discussion on a regular basis. I had it last week with a friend of mine. What do you think about these different Gospels that are in the Bible? If you go to historychannel.org, there are 131 documentaries about the Bible. These are just five. Bible secrets revealed. That started this last week on Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was. The Bible code. You know, there's a new one now where there's this code of how to get rich in the Bible, and this guy will tell you how he took his parents' little nest egg and turned it into a million dollars, and for the low, low price of 1995, you can learn the Bible financial code. Mysteries of Mary Magdalene. You know, the Da Vinci Code held that, they were, that, that she married Jesus. And there are actually documentaries and books that teach that the offspring of Mary Magdalene and Jesus migrated to France and became the progenitors of the kings of France. The missing years of Jesus. You know, we don't know much about Jesus until he started his ministry in his early 30s. What happened to all those years in between? And what happened is over time, particularly in the 2nd and 3rd century, there was a group of writers called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, and they wrote mysterious deeds of the missing years of Jesus. These books were discovered in 1947 in Egypt. They're called the Gnostic Writings. Why aren't they in the Bible? The lost Gospels, what happened to them? Are there lost? You know, yeah, well, there's the Gospel of Thomas. I've read it. The Gospel of Peter. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There's the Gospel of, uh, of all sorts of people. And so this, it's a valid question if you don't, uh, engage the culture, you won't have answers to these questions. And this is where the battle is being fought. If you're a follower of Christ, the issue is over the reliability of the Bible. And on the History Channel, they almost always have two experts. One is a female named uh, Dr. Pagels. Uh, her name is Ellen Pagels, and she does not believe in the reliability of the Bible, but she's a professor at Princeton Seminary. So she's got the academics. And the other is a man named Bart Ertman, who uh, wrote, a, wrote a book dis disputing the reliability of the Bible and the person of Christ. You see, how do we know that the Bible is true? And for Christians, it is the ultimate question. Because everything we know and believe about Jesus comes from the Bible. You know, how do we know Jesus was born in Bethlehem? How do we know Jesus fed the 5,000? How do we know Jesus was crucified? How do we know he was raised on the third day? 
Maybe that was just made up. Maybe they were later editions. How do we know that what we have in the Bible is what was originally written in those books? So these are huge questions, and if you don't understand the answers to these questions, you will be in a fog spiritually. We did a survey here at TBA about a year ago, and we were a little surprised and very disappointed to find that 45% of you don't believe that the Bible is actually God's Word. So look around, the person on either side of you, one, one of you doesn't believe in the inspired Word of God. Smack that person. No, love that person, because there are great answers. I know some you, she, she actually hit you. I saw you hit her. There are great answers to this stuff. Lee Strobel's written a bunch of books on faith. One is called The Case for Faith. He deals in that chapter about the reliability of the Bible very well. I'm Glad You Asked is a book that we've used for 30 years. We just re-released it in a new version, including some of this most recent stuff. Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Great information on the reliability of the Bible. There are problems with the Bible when you come to it you need to understand that there are, these are questions that get raised, and, and we need to have good information. Is the Bible really inspired? You know, the verse that was in the newsletter this week, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. That's what the word inspired means. Is that really true? How can you show that? Why do Christians believe that? What about interpretation? Oh, there are many interpretations of the Bible. How do you know yours is the right one? Science, you know, we have the accounts of creation, and yet we have the, the, the fact of evolution. How do you reconcile those, those things? Ethics. You know, there are difficult ethical questions in the Scripture. Questions like slavery, questions like genocide. How do you deal with those? You need to have answers to these for, for yourself and for your friends. Errors. There are some apparent errors in the Bible. You know, in, in the book of Genesis, there are two ac- accounts of creation. Genesis 1 is different than Genesis 2. Which one is right? You know, at the tomb of Jesus, one gospel says there was an angel, another gospel says there were two angels. Which is it? And then you have canonicity. Canonicity means the, uh, the word canon means rule or standard. Which books get in? That's what canonicity is about. And, And is it true what they taught in the Da Vinci Code and on these History Channel documentaries that the organized Orthodox Church had an axe to grind and so they excluded the non-traditional Gospels. And the ones we are left with are not necessarily the best ones, but they're the ones that were left behind by the people in charge. You know, the golden rule says, whoever has the gold makes the rules. And then miracles. You know, how in the world could the miracles have happened? They seem to fly in the face of reason, and we live in an age of reason and secular logic. So good to wrestle with these, and I'm not going to take all of them in one 30-minute sermon, and you're going to be glad to hear that. But I want to focus today on about three things. I want to focus on the accuracy of the Bible, the authenticity of the Bible, and the authority of the Bible. Say those three words for me. Accuracy, authenticity, and authority. Tell them to the person sitting next to you and don't hit them. Go. Accuracy. Let's talk first about the accuracy of the Bible. The accuracy of the Bible is what was first written an accurate account of what actually happened? That's a huge question. So when John writes the Gospel of John, do we know that what he wrote was accurate? When Paul writes a letter from a jail in Rome, do we know that that was what Paul wrote down? Is what was first written an accurate account of what happened? Well, this providentially and under God's sovereign umbrella, I got asked to speak about this today. This week will be November 22nd. Anybody know why November 22nd is important? Tell me. 
Yeah, it was the day that JFK was assassinated. Fifty years ago this week, we will observe the anniversary of the killing of JFK. Fifty years ago, I was 13 years old. And I remember a lot about that day. And I remember being glued to the television as we watched live the swearing-in of Lyndon Johnson and the uh, funeral that lasted forever and ever and ever when you're 13. But prior to 1963 was 1960. Let me show you something that happened in 1960. That is JFK. He came to my hometown. I was 10 years old. My mom and dad took me to go see him. It was very cold. It was an October day. He rode right down by our city hall in this motorcade, and he got to this was our main street called Broad Street, and he spoke from this podium, and 15,000 people were there, and we only had 28,000 people in our town. It was a big deal. I remember a lot about that day. And if you were to ask me to write down my recollections of that day, even 53 years later, I could remember eight or ten things that actually happened. And if my kids took those recollections and handed them down to my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, you could be sure that what I recollected was valid because I was an eyewitness to that. Does that make sense to you? Well, that's how the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament was put together. It was put together by eyewitnesses of Jesus. Let me give you some illustrations. John 19, verse 35. At the end of his Gospel, John wants you to know he saw this. John says, this report, meaning my Gospel, is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. It is presented so that you also can believe. See, John makes very clear why he writes about Jesus. He's writing about the person of Christ in order to bring people to faith. John was probably a teenager when he followed Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, all of the New Testament books are written by either eyewitnesses or their secretaries. That's a huge thing. And we know from John 16 that Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind all that he had done. John didn't write down everything he knew. In fact, he said, I wrote down only seven miracles that Jesus did. So we have, at least from John's standpoint, I was there, I was an eyewitness, you can count on this. When you go to 2 Peter, he says, we were not making up clever stories. This is Peter, one of the twelve, the leader of the twelve. We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor, what? With our own eyes. You know, Peter was there. He touched Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He lived with Jesus for three years. He laughed with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He denied Jesus and then came back around spiritually, and he was the apostle to the Jewish people. And when Peter writes his books, and he writes First and Second Peter, and he also writes the book of Mark. You know Mark, John Mark is his full name, was the secretary to Peter. And if you outline the book of Mark, it is the same outline as Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. Very interesting study to do the book of Mark and Acts 2. They really fit logically together. So Peter was an eyewitness, and he wanted people to know, hey, this is what happened. And then John does the same thing. I'm sorry, not John. Uh, Paul does the same thing, where he says all Scripture is inspired by God. You know, we know Paul wrote these books because every one of Paul's books starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. And so Paul saw the resurrected Christ, and that's one of the criteria for biblical authorship. Were these people apostles, and have they had an encounter with the resurrected Christ? We know that John did. We know that Peter did. We know that James did. We know that Paul did. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. 
So there are some questions that we'll never answer in this world. But we know that what we've got, especially from the New Testament standpoint, is written by eyewitnesses. When you come to the, the councils of the church, it's just some helpful things to know. In A.D. 39, I'm sorry, A.D. 90, uh, the Jewish rabbis met at Jamnia, a city in, in Palestine or, or Israel, and they said these books are the ones that we recognize as our scripture. Now these books were three. There were the law and the prophets and the writing. But the books that Jesus read from and the books that the apostles quoted, see, the, the New Testament is full of quotes from the Old Testament. The book of James quotes the Old Testament over 30 times in five chapters. And the Jews said, hey, these are our books. There was no debating that. In the New Testament, the canon or the organized New Testament had been around and been circulating for a while, but then there were some problems that occurred, and in A.D. 393 and A.D. 397, the church leaders did get together, and they affirmed what had always been the case. These are the books, the 27 New Testament books, as opposed to some of these other things which are trying to creep in. Notice this is before the formation of the Catholic Church, and the accusation is that the Roman Church was so strong and they wanted to kick out any arguments. That was just not the way it went uh, down. Most of the New Testament was written before 70 A.D., and all of it was finished by the end of the first century by eyewitnesses or their secretaries. And we have these books that were written. Within 50 years of the writing of the New Testament, they were being circulated widely. Matthew, Mark, Luke were circulated among all the churches in the Mediterranean world. The epistles of Paul, the letters of Paul, had been bound into one volume, and they would go from church to church among the Gentile believers. Within a hundred years of the writing of the New Testament, uh, the church fathers quote from the writings that we believe to be the New Testament, and they equate them with Scripture. And I would encourage you, if you've never read the church fathers, read guys like Clement and Ignatius. They wrote about 100 A.D., and they were followers of the apostles of Jesus, and they quoted the books of the New Testament as Scripture. Here's the thing. Within a hundred years of the events of Jesus, the New Testament is written, and within that first hundred years, there are no quotations by the apostles or the church fathers, who were the leaders, of any of these so-called missing gospels. They just didn't show up until the second and third century. And when they did show up, the reason they were not scripture was they were not inspired. There are errors in them. They don't claim to be inspired. The people that allegedly wrote them were not around when they were written. They were not written until the late 100s, early 200s A.D. And so if it says, oh, this is the gospel of, uh, of Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot died when Jesus died. So there is no gospel of Judas Iscariot that was an eyewitness account. It was written in the 200s. The same with the gospel of Thomas and the same with the gospel of Mary Magdalene. These are written in the 200s A.D., so they couldn't have been written by the people that they are attributed to. And yet we get on the History Channel and we watch this pablum. And listen, i got friends that stay up at night and pay attention to this. And they see Dr. Elaine Pagel saying the Bible was not written by the people who said they wrote it. John was not written by John. Matthew was not written by Matthew. Well, do the study. Do the investigation. I think you'll come to the decision that it's much easier to believe that these were the books written by these people than to say, ah, it got put together later and the name was added. Because we have not only the, the accuracy of the Bible, we have its authenticity. Say authenticity. 
Is your brain about to explode yet? Mine is. I had four hours to preach of stuff, so if you want to talk more, come see me after. The authenticity question is this. Is what we have now the same as what was first written? Good question. You know, you, you played the game at the, at the Christmas parties or the birthday parties where we would whisper something. I'd whisper something to you. Let's say I'd whisper, uh, Eric Graybard loves the Miami Dolphins. And you would whisper to him, and you would whisper to whisper to whisper to whisper. And by the time it gets over here, it might say, Eric Richards hates Dan Marino. And that's the accusation of the Bible, that it got handed down and handed down and retranslated and retranslated, so what we have is not accurate. Well, there's great news here if you're a follower of Christ and you love the Bible. And that is, I'm, I'm convinced that what we have is a very exact approximation of what was originally written. You know, we have some manuscript evidence. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible Jesus read is the same Bible that was originally produced and it's the Bible that we read today in our Old Testament. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were copies of every book of the Old Testament. And prior to 1947, uh, the earliest manuscript of the Old Testament we had was 9 AD. Think about that. So the obvious question is, is what we have from the 900 AD Old Testament, the same Bible that Jesus read, and the same Bible that David read, and the same Bible that Moses wrote, Good question. But in 1947, with the discovery of these scrolls down in the southern part of Israel, we have a whole Bible, Old Testament, and the Bibles are identical almost to the letter over a thousand years of time. In fact, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can go online and investigate them thoroughly, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are really cool. They're, my favorite chapter in the Old Testament is, is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is really the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is this, God loves you, but he's perfect and you're not. And you need a substitute to come and take the punishment that you deserve for not being perfect. And Isaiah 53 is about a perfect servant who comes and he gives his life as a sin offering for the world. Now in Isaiah 53, there are 166 words and from 900 A.D. to the Dead Sea Scrolls, a thousand years have been covered. And in those thousand years, out of those 166 words, only 17 letters had changed. Three of the letters were the word for light, L-I-G-H-T, because the people that wrote down the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, loved the idea of light versus darkness. They had that theme in their Bible. But the other thing that's cool is all the other 14 letters are just spelling changes. You know, think about it. If you wanted to read English and it's 200-year-old English, it's hard to read because the words are spelled a little differently. The letters are a little bit funky. You know, the, sometimes the letter F is an F and sometimes it's an S. And that's what creeps into every language. And the great thing is I can go to Israel or go online, I can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I can read that Hebrew because it's the same Hebrew that was around when Jesus was around. And it's the same Hebrew that's around today. In the New Testament... Again, we have all sorts of manuscript evidence. By 100 years after the New Testament was written, we have 14,000 copies of it. Think about that. And what the scholars do is they take these copies and they look at the differences. And they're able to look at the differences and lay them out, and together they decide, okay, this must have been what was in the original for this difference to occur. Let me show you a little chart that's very, very helpful. 
You know, I went to an Ivy League school. How many of you watched Penn lose to Harvard yesterday? Come on, what did you do, watch the stupid Auburn game? How dull was that? The mighty Quakers yesterday played at Harvard, and they were down 38 nothing in the third quarter. And we came back, and we had a chance to score with 20 seconds to play from the 20-yard line, and we lost 38-36. But when I went to Penn, we studied Homer, we studied Plato, we studied Aristotle. And at the time, nobody told me that although Homer was written in 900 B.C., the earliest manuscript we have of Homer is from 400 B.C., And there are 500 years between that difference, and we have 643 manuscripts of Homer. So again, what the scholars do, and that's Homer's Iliad, he's written a lot of stuff. They took the Iliad and they laid out the 643 manuscripts, and every time there was a difference, they reconstructed what they thought must be in the original. You with me? And the manuscript of Homer is about 95% accurate that the Greek scholars are able to put back together. When it comes to Plato and Aristotle and the writings of Caesar, we had no way to do that. Look at these variances. Plato writes 400 B.C., and his earliest manuscript is 900 A.D. There's 1,300 years between the writing of Plato and the earliest manuscript, and there's only seven of those manuscripts. You can't take seven manuscripts and recreate originals. Yet no one says, oh, Plato may not have said that. The same with Aristotle, the same with Caesar. But you see, when you come to the New Testament, it's written from 50 to 95 A.D. The earliest manuscript is before 130 A.D. We've got a piece of the Gospel of John called the Rylands Fragment. It was dated at 125 A.D. John was written in about 95 A.D. Again, that would be me, like me writing about seeing President Kennedy, only instead of there being 53 years in between the visit and my timing, there would be 30 years. So we have a a big chunk of the book of John that's 30 years after the original writing. The cool thing is that when within 100 years, really, oh, went the wrong way. Within 100 years, there's 14,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. So the scholars have an abundance of material. And so they go back to the New Testament and they say, what did the original Greek manuscripts say? When you open up your Bible, and I hope you open up your Bible on a regular basis, What you're seeing is not something that came from Greek to Hebrew to Aramaic to Latin to Ugaritic to German to English to you. No, it's what was constructed in an original manuscript. That's what the scholars do. And so no matter what version you use of the Bible, they go back to the the original Greek copy that they've been able to reconstruct. It is 99.97 pure. The scholars are able to say with certainty 99.97% of what we've reconstructed is what must have been in the original text. Now, that doesn't prove the Bible is the Word of God, but it does prove that the Bible is accurate, that what was written is what I'm, what I'm looking at. So we have the question of authenticity and we have the question of accuracy. The third question we have is the question of authority. Is the Bible the Word of God? And again, I can't prove that to you. But I can help you understand, number one, the Bible claims that. And number two, there are some reasons to conclude that. Let me share with you some verses from the Bible about itself. You know, is what was first written really the Word of God? Well, Luke says, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus had a very high view of the Bible. 
He actually says in John chapter 10, the scriptures cannot be broken. He says, the law and the prophets not, will not pass away until all is fulfilled. So Jesus here is saying, hey, I have a high view of the Bible. When you come to the New Testament, 2 Peter 1, pro- Peter says, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did the Holy Spirit give people the words to write? That's what the idea of God breathed or inspiration is. And then the, the famous verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. So the Bible itself claims to be valid and it claims to be authoritative and it claims to be originated with God. Now, when I come to that book, and gosh, you need to come to that book, I need to know that there's a message to the Bible. And often I'll ask somebody this question, do you have a problem with the reliability of the Bible or do you just not like the message of the Bible? What is the message of the Bible? Well, the message of the Bible took 1,500 years to write. It's written down in 66 books by 39 or 40 authors, depending on how you take one book. It's written in three languages on three continents, but there's one message to the Bible. Do you know what the message is? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Every book of the Bible is about that message. God loves us, but he's perfect and we're not. And so God loves us enough to send Jesus to come and die for us so that we don't need to, serve, uh, to, to pay our own punishment of death and that Jesus is resurrected at, on the third day and he'll come live in us. So not only do we have the promise of forgiveness, we have the promise of eternal life because of what Jesus has done for us. Every book of the Bible points to that in the Old Testament, and every book of the New Testament looks back at that. That's the message of the Bible. Well, there's some other stuff in there, and you need to know what that is, because the Bible speaks to a lot of areas of our life. But God's desire in giving us the Bible is to say, hey, I'm writing, I'm writing a love letter to you. I want you to know about this Jesus who's going to come. I can do this for every book of the Bible. When you start with Genesis, in Genesis 3, God promises that one would come who was born only of a woman. The virgin birth is predicted in Genesis 3. And, and the picture of, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac is a picture of God, the loving father, sacrificing his perfect son. He's the son of sacrifice. In the book of Exodus, in the New Testament, Paul says Jesus is our Passover lamb and he's been sacrificed for us. And the book of Exodus is all about the Jewish Passover where they would take a lamb and they would kill it and they would smear the blood over the doorposts of the house, and then the family would go in and eat the lamb. That's a picture of Jesus who came because he loves you, and he's willing to die and shed his blood for you. And the Passover lamb has to be killed every year, but Jesus only dies once. That's the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 16 is all about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that one day a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holy Places, and he, and he sacrifices the blood of bulls and goats for the sins of the nation. And the book of Hebrews says, we have a better priest, Jesus, who passed through into the Holy of Holies in heaven, and he gave a sacrifice not of the blood of bulls and goats, but of his own blood for us. The book of Numbers tells the story of the Jews wandering in the wilderness, and they were being killed because of their sinfulness. And God said, Moses, take a pole and put a bronze serpent on it, and whoever looks in faith to that solution for their sin will be forgiven. And Jesus, as weird as that is, quotes that in John 3. Right before John 3, 16 comes John 3, 14. 
Unless the Son of Man is lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, you cannot be forgiven. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. The book of Deuteronomy, Moses predicts that God is going to send another prophet like me, the intermediary between the people. But Moses was just a man and he died. He was the intermediary between God and the Jews. But Jesus came. And he is the fulfillment of that prophecy that he comes and he's the intermediary between us and God. He comes because we're not perfect and he makes a way for us to be perfect in the eyes of God. The book of Joshua is the book of the conquest and Jesus is the captain and author of our salvation. The book of Judges, he's coming as a judge. You know Jesus is alive right now and he's coming again. But when he comes this time, it won't be like this Christmas baby. It's going to be like a king dressed in a white robe, dipped in blood, riding a horse, because he's coming to judge. And the picture is in the book of Judges. The book of First and Second Samuel is about God's promise to David that on his throne there would be a king who would reign forever. And you know what the first verse of the New Testament is? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham, and he has the right to rule on the throne of David because he lives forever. See, that is the message of the Bible, that God loves you so much that he sends Jesus to die for you, and if you're willing to live on the basis of that and that alone, you have the promise of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. So what are we going to do with that? Let me give you a couple things. First, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that's why we exist. Oh, we exist to do a lot of good stuff, and we're happy about all that. We need you to bring your boxes next week. But apart from that, we exist because we want you to know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus yet, and you still have questions about the reliability of the Bible or this message of the Bible which says God loves you and he wants to know you, God wants you to be a part of his family. And if you've never taken the opportunity to do that, we'd love to talk to you about that. Grab me, grab one of the pastors, grab whomever. But we exist here to share Christ and to help you understand how you can have a relationship with him. If you're here today and you know Jesus, here's your action step. You need to commit to read and study the Bible every day. I've been doing ministry now for nearly 40 years. I didn't always read the Bible and I didn't always know Jesus. But in 40 years of ministry, I have observed this. And this is true, 100% true. I promise you this is true. People who are willing to read and study the Bible will grow in their faith. And people who are not willing to read and study the Bible every day do not grow in their faith. See, the question is not how long have you been a Christian? Oh, I've been a Christian for 28 years. Well, some of us would would say, well, I've been a Christian one year 28 times because you're not spending any time in the Scripture. Well, I don't like to read. Well, have I got a deal for you? This week I went to the Bible.com and I registered for the 30-day audio Bible challenge. You can do that on your phone and listen. You can do that on your computer and listen. You can download it to your iPod and listen. If you don't like to read, and I'd encourage you to read it, but if you don't like to read, that's, you're, you don't have an excuse because this will read a couple, three chapters a day. Between now and Christmas, it will get you through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What a better way to prepare for Christmas. Christmas is only 46 days away. I, I'm, I've got my list up here. I'll give it out after the message. But you need to be in the Scripture. It's a book that has authenticity. It's a book that has authority. It's a book that has accuracy. 
It is God's word to us. And if you're a Christian and you're not reading the Bible, you're not growing because that's the only way you can get fed. Singing's great, praying's great, being at church is great. But all that involves participation. Reading the Bible involves eating. You see, I love to eat. Jeremiah says, your word was found and I did eat it. And your word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my soul. God wants you to stick the scriptures into your life and live by it. So that's what I'd like you to, to consider. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we come to you as, as, as people. Some of us know you and some of us don't. And Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you yet, I pray that this would encourage them to read the Bible, read about Jesus, uncover some of the issues that are involved in the scriptures themselves and understand the message, the message of love. You loved us so much that Jesus came and died on the cross in our place. Father, if no one's ever made that decision to follow Jesus, I pray you would use this time for them to do just that. And then, Father, for the rest of us who know you and love you, we pray that you would find us worthy recipients of your love letter to us, that we would open your Bible daily, that we would devour it, that we would be ministered to by it, that it would change us the way you, de you desire to change us. We thank you for your word which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that at TBA we would be known as people of the word, people of the book, people who walk in the light of the scriptures daily. We ask in Jesus' name.